sometimes I'll make a mistake during a lecture or I'll make an argument that's not quite right and not even notice it and the student will catch me. And I just love it when students do that. What makes a great teacher? Maybe to receive one of the finest honours in your academic field and still get a kick out of being corrected by your students. This is Nobel Prize Conversations. And you just heard 2020 Economic Sciences Laureate Paul Milgram, the Shirley and Leonard Eli Professor of Humanities and Sciences at Stanford University. Milgram was awarded the prize together with his former teacher Robert Wilson for their work on auction theory and the development of new auction formats. As a child, Milgram fantasised about being a scientist like Einstein, but as the son of a high school dropout, he never imagined such a future was possible. It was his university teachers who saw the researcher in him when he started to question the methods that were being taught and made suggestions on how they could be improved. I was the first high school graduate in my family, so I always thought that that was just a, you know, that being a professor or being a researcher was a total dream. It wasn't something that would happen to anyone in my family. And um, then it did. So it's uh, been a pretty good life. Your host is Adam Smith, Chief Scientific Officer at Nobel Prize Outreach. This podcast was produced in cooperation with Site Stiftung. Paul Milgram tells of the joys of mentoring the economists of the future, his newfound dedication to finding ways of making all his students, male and female, reach their full potential, and the academic benefit of a weekly barbecue. But first, the conversation dives into the exhausting aftermath of receiving that coveted prize. What has life been like for Paul Milgram post-Nobel? Unusually busy. Uh, it, it's been hard to get, um, to get my, hand around, my hands around just how, uh, how famous this prize is because uh, I thought I was pretty well known in my field, but the number of additional telephone calls and emails and letters and requests for signed photographs and, you know, the, every day there's just dozens of these things uh, more coming in than I'm accustomed to. And it's kind of been hard to get used to the workload. I, I see that you've hired your daughter to be a kind of gatekeeper to you now. I have. And, and that worked for a while. I, I had set up things in my email that everything that had the word Nobel in it would be forwarded to my daughter so that the I mean, there were hundreds, even thousands at the begin at the uh, at the beginning, but now it's just um, people are not necessarily referring to that. They um, I, they just think of me as as a speaker that they can invite or something, and I'm sure it's related to the prize. And and there's still a very large volume, but it doesn't even mention the Nobel Prize anymore. I like the idea that if people knew the trick, they could get round the gatekeeper by not using the word Nobel. <laughs> Well, that's what they're doing now anyway. So, uh, so I have to find some new way to, uh, um, mm. to manage this flow. You strike me as somebody who was anyway very busy and used your time in a kind of in the fullest possible way. So I guess you're good at organizing time generally. I'm not sure how good I am. I, I, one of the things that's been different I, I, I did keep busy. And one of the things that's been different is that before the prize, um, mostly I worked on a small number of big things and I'd work for hours at a time on one thing and then shift and, and work on something else. And what's happened as a result of the prize is lots and lots of small things, you know, 
would you sign this photograph? Would you, you know, answer this message? And um, they're just, it makes it much harder to concentrate on, um, on the, on the big things that I was doing before. So um, uh, figuring out how to manage time. So I, I have been trying to, to do new things to manage time. One thing I do is um, I try, uh, in, instead of just answering emails as they come, I try to turn off the emails uh, while I'm working on something that takes, uh, that takes concentration and just look at it every few hours instead of letting things pop up as they used to. Mm. But I try. I'm very interested to know where self-discipline came from. What were you like as a child? Were you a, a very disciplined child? I was no. I was a dreamer. I, I um, you know, as a child, uh, I didn't get good grades in school. Um, you know, my mind wandered in all sorts of places. Uh, I could only, you know, I don't know, maybe, maybe these days they would have diagnosed me as ADHD or something. But they, in any case, uh, I could only concentrate on things that I thought were interesting. And um, I remember trying so hard to learn to concentrate as a child. And I remember when I was trying to force myself to read uh, uh, assignments and I'd sit down and I wouldn't let myself uh, get up and I'd look at a book and I'd read a book for 20 minutes and then I'd stop and say, what did I read? And I had no idea. I mean, the thing is, it just went in and out. My, my eyes were going over the page, but I just couldn't hold, couldn't concentrate on, couldn't hold the, the things in front of me. So, so no, it didn't happen as a child. I think fortunately, one of the things that's happened is now um, I do spend al almost all of my time working on stuff I'm interested in. And that makes it a lot easier to concentrate. So, uh, so maybe that's the maybe it's just the um, that I've been able to focus on stuff that I that I really enjoy. That's made the concentration possible. I suppose that is the key. And, and what a privilege to to spend one's and, time doing. And what a privilege! It's true. It's really true. Yeah. I guess that's what you have to find out in life. What it is that you want to be doing. If you have, if you're lucky enough to go in that direction. I've had a couple of the, a couple of moments when I've made you know sort of big changes or big moves um, in my life. A after my undergraduate degree, which was in mathematics, I went and worked for a while as an actuary and did that for a few years and became a fellow of the Society of Actuaries. And I was getting bored with that, and I thought it was going to be too routine. So I decided I was going to go get an MBA at Stanford and and uh, do, have a business career. But it turns out I was always a researcher at heart. Even when I was an actuary, I was writing uh, papers about um, uh, how improvements to the methods, how things could be done better. And when I got to Stanford, um, I was taking MBA classes and I'd go up to the professors and say, you know, those methods are just the wrong methods. Here's a better way to analyze the problem. And um, a professor, one professor pulled me aside one day and said, you're in the wrong program. We have a doctoral program. And... Um, uh, I thought about it for a day or two, and I said, "Yeah, I am. That's who I, I don't really want to be. You know, a business person. I really want to be a researcher. And if they're offering me this, I'll take it." So I just made a total switch in uh, the <laughs> direction of my life and and became a researcher. And um, one of the best things I ever did because it it really fit me. It was really very natural. As a child who didn't couldn't necessarily concentrate on on what they weren't interested in, what did you think your future would hold? 
Did you think about the future? Not much. I used to dream. I guess I always dreamed of, uh, you know, oh, as a kid, you know, as, as, as I say, I was a dreamer and, and I was fascinated by, you know, stories about Einstein and, you know, other great thinkers and thought, wouldn't it be wonderful to be a scientist, to be, you know, to be a great thinker. So, um, so I suppose it was natural. <laughs> Therefore, it, was, uh, it, it, it always felt natural to go in that direction. You know, though, there were, there were no, um, my older brother was a high school dropout. My father had dropped out of high school during the Great Depression. I was the first high school graduate in my family. So I always thought that that was just a, you know, that being a professor or being a researcher was a total dream. It wasn't something that would happen to anyone in my family. And um, then it did. So it's uh, been a pretty good life. <laughs> but I'm, I'm interested in, in this switch from a profession to a life of research. Did the family want you to take that direction? Did you care what the family thought? I didn't really care much about it. I mean, they weren't um, involved in that decision. Uh, all the stuff I did, my, my parents didn't really understand. Here's another story for you that will uh, to show you just how little my parents understood. When, when I got my um, PhD from Stanford, my parents came out to celebrate. Um, at that point, um, my, my son Joshua was already born and uh, was a little tyke. He was, uh, what, six months old when we went to my gra graduation ceremony. And um, the university is, is uh, its official name is Leland Stanford Junior University. It's named after Leland Stanford Junior, the young man who died, um, the, the Stanford child who had died. And uh, my father arrived and said, oh, it's Leland Stanford Junior, junior University. Does that mean that this is a junior college? Uh, so... I mean, it, I, my parents really had no clue what was going on and, you know, um, or of the prestige that uh, Stanford University was or any of that. I was uh, uh, on my own making those decisions. I wonder if that set you up in good stead, because, I mean, if, if you turn up and you question the professors and tell them they're using the wrong method, it shows that you've got a, a sort of healthy disregard for authority. Perhaps that, that's the way to approach somewhere like Stanford, that you... Um, you haven't grown up holding it as a, something to be honoured or feared. It's just a different world and, and you can approach it more sort of head on. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about it that way. That's very interesting that you put it that way. I'm always sort of amazed when uh, my undergraduates always call me Professor Milgram. My graduate students always call me Paul. And, um, <laughs> and I don't know uh, whether that signifies, uh, signifies something, but um, yeah, but I guess maybe it does signify that people, uh, that there are different ways of looking at, uh, um, uh, uh, you know, who you're talking to. And, and although the undergraduates don't seem shy about questioning, I don't know, that's just a, just a, um, a symbol. No, but there's something about, maybe challenging is too strong a word, but at least questioning received wisdom and whether you have the, I suppose the confidence, but also the attitude to, to to ask the right questions. Hopefully, we're encouraging that. I mean, they, one of the things I want to be doing as a professor, when when students ask questions that are hard, sometimes say, "Well, I'm not, you know, I don't know the answer to that question, but here's how I would think about it." I, you know, I, I try to be really quite explicit. Um, I'm not, I'm not a font of authority. I don't think of any of these of the people around me, you know, we, 
uh, we know some things and there's some things we can uh, say with confidence and other things we can say with less confidence and other things that, that are new to us that where we don't really have evidence or we haven't thought through the logic um, and, uh, and there's room for the students to make their own contributions. And I try to emphasize that with students all the time that uh, there, there's lots of room for you to make contributions. There are new questions coming up all the time. There are things, how, what, there are th important things going on that we don't know. What are we gonna do about you know, overfishing? What are, what are we gonna do about cap and trade? And you know, what are we gonna do about carbon? What are we gonna do about you know, um, inequality? What are we going to do about education and um, and and you know, racism? You know, we we talk about um, many of these things. Racism is pretty much the hardest one to talk about because of uh, um, uh, it's the hardest one to talk about. Uh, but the but the others are are pretty much um, you know wide open and and um, and I just try to lead a conversation rather than you know telling students what they should think. Mm. And in general, do they see the the applicability of what they're studying to these enormous problems, which touch so much more than the topic of their undergraduate degree? Right, and we we understand that often we're dealing with um, little pieces of the problem. How you assign children to schools or something <laughs> will be a little piece of the problem. And, and we try to keep in mind uh, when we're doing that, that yes, they see how it helps. And yes, they see that uh, the big things that it, it, it doesn't touch. If you can talk about how to assign children to schools better, but that doesn't make the schools better themselves, right? You, you also want the schools to be better. And that may be the biggest thing to be done. So, so um, the, the students learn um, ways to approach um, you know, particular detailed questions, but also try to keep in, in perspective uh, the larger questions and, you know, how they're uh, chipping away at a little piece of, of uh, each of these enormous uh, problems. Yeah. How, how important to find your role, to find the, the part that you can play to the best effect? So to, for me, the part I play to best effect, which I, I love is just being able to, you know, I mean, there are hundreds of perhaps thousands of students that I've been able to affect over the years. And, and uh, if I, you know, a little change, help each one of them think a little better or twist some of them toward thinking about more important problems. Um, uh, what a lovely role for me to get to play. It's a great deal of fun. Where did you learn that attitude to teaching, which sounds just the right attitude? <laughs> well, thank you. Um, I don't know. It's, it's it, it, I've been teaching at some great institutions. You know, I, uh, I've spent uh, since 1987, so I've been, what, 34 years here at, at, at Stanford. And um, the Stanford students are amazing. Uh, they, the, uh, they're very smart, very talented. And, and uh, uh, I, so th this is something, I'm, you know, I'm not very defensive. I love it when they catch me in errors. And students, uh, will, sometimes I'll make a mistake during a lecture or I'll make an argument that's not quite right and not even notice it. And the student will catch me. And I just love it when students do that, right? They, uh, uh, and, you know, sort of engage, show that they're following the detail, engaged in their thinking. And it's just sort of, sort of obvious that it's possible to um, inspire them, inspire some of them, teach, teach them, uh, uh, refocus them. And it's it's just been fun. I I, uh, I feel 
close to a lot of these students. Actually, a lot of students still write to me years later and tell me about, you know, things that they're doing. So it's, it's very rewarding, very rewarding. Paul Milgram's field of research is auction theory, including hands-on development of new, highly sophisticated auction systems. It all started in 1993, when Milgram was contacted by a regional phone company who wanted to take part in a government auction for radio spectrum rights. The company had trouble deciphering the proposed rules for the auction and asked Paul Milgram to take a look. At first, he hesitated, thinking he was too much of a theorist to be able to make a contribution until he read the proposal and became convinced he could do better. Today, Milgram's and Wilson's theories and tools have been used for auctioning off a wide range of rights in television broadcasting, mobile broadband and more. Now, as we take on bigger problems like climate change and global inequality, the laureate believes auction technology can play an important role in tackling the challenges of the future. Not that mobile broadband auctions aren't complex enough, but do do you see what's coming next around the corner? What's the next more complicated um, thing that is going to have to be solved as an as an auction property, so to speak? Well, there are a lot of new things that people are talking about. Um, you know, we're talking about uh, um, as we as we move forward with uh, uh, innovations in transportation. We're talking about road pricing. The, 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 um, to reduce uh, overuse of congested roads, um, to automatically reroute people that way over, over roads that are um, off roads that are too congested and onto other roads and, and to incentivize compliance with that by pricing so that the, uh, the overused roads at overused times are more expensive. Um, that's uh, something, that, a bunch of stuff that's going on on the internet you may or may not know that uh, every time you run a Google search um, or a Bing search, and you, anytime you run a search on any uh, major site, the uh, an auction takes place in the background to determine which ads will be shown to you. Uh, that's how the uh, the advertisers uh, buy advertising space, and there's complexities um, in setting up those ads. Um, the um, so uh, the space advertising space. Uh, uh, there, there's a discussion about uh, uh, fishery, fishing rights in Chile that I'm talking to people about uh, uh, soon. There's just lots and lots of resource allocations where the uh, um, uh, where we use relatively simple markets before because that's all we could do, and where we can improve the resource allocation by uh, uh, improving the market function by taking advantage of some of the new techniques we've learned. It must be fascinating for you to have auctions as, as, if you like, a lens through which to see all these different problems. It is. It's um, <laughs> it's exciting too because I I uh, have some chance of directly, you know, influencing practice in more and more and uh, uh, more and more places where getting the resource allocation right is is very important. So um, I'm really looking forward to that, to doing more of that. Myself, with my students, with my company, Auctionomics, that, um, uh, through which I, I do much of this activity, uh, and my collaborators at Auctionomics and my students who, uh, who pick up projects of their own. There's just lots of good we can do in the world, and that's very exciting to be able to do. Is there any downside to this methodology, which is, the way you described it, it's rather sweeping the world as a way of distributing resources? 
Well, um, you know, the, like like any tool, uh, things can be used or misused. We try to um, to do things in ways that represent all the things that we value. Uh, uh, usually, when we uh, design a market, there are, are particular objectives in mind, and people fight over those. So, you know, uh, we all the time we talk in the news these days about whether market outcomes are fair. You know, do they treat men and women equally? Do they treat races races equally? Do they lead to inequality? Um, A a whole variety of concerns of of that sort. And and often market designs don't do uh, anything to promote those social values. Um, Sometimes we do do things that can promote social values, you know, market designs for free food distribution or for vaccine distribution or... uh, and so on that that improve um, resource allocation and can take into account uh, some of these other social values. Mm. Raising the question of diversity, as you just did, do you think it is an important consideration in the way that your own discipline moves forward? Do, do, is it essential to bring greater diversity into the population of economists, if you like? I, I think yes, and I'm, by the way, I'm very personally involved in that too. We can talk about that a bit. Mm. But yes, I do for for two kinds of reasons. One, you know, we're trying to be creative, and the diverse viewpoints uh, uh, will often lead to different kinds of insights. So, so that's important. And also, you know, I'm I am um, personally committed to uh, helping every student. Uh, achieve their potential. I think we've done a really bad job in the past, or at least I personally feel like I hadn't done an adequate job in the past helping my women students do as well as my men. My men have uh, been spectacularly successful. I've had a couple of women who've been spectacularly successful too, but not, uh, not so many. It's, it's um, so I've, I've taken a lot of time thinking about why that is. Uh, I had previously modeled education on my own needs and, um, you know, because that's what I understood, what it was like, what, what I would needed when I was a student. But now, um, for example, to take uh, one very concrete and important example, um, among uh, the women that come to graduate school, for the most part, the people who speak out in classes and in seminars are mostly men. And the people who are quiet, well, there's quiet men, but virtually all the women are quiet. Um, and... Uh, and don't get an opportunity to participate in the discussion. So, um, so that, uh, in my own... Isn't that interesting? Because if you think of a bunch of, I don't know, if you think of a bunch of 12-year-olds, I wouldn't say that 12-year-old boys and 12-year-old girls are very different in the amount of noise they make, how much they speak. So something happens. What happens? Yeah, I wish I knew. But that's not the, um, the reason I haven't thought as much about that is I've thought about what I can do, and what I can do is uh, takes that as a given and starts from there. And and what I've been able to do, and I, I, we're, I'm really very excited about the current group of students that I'm teaching. Um, I think that there was a problem with gender balance to begin with, that the girls uh, in a group of boys, um, the one girl in a group of boys feels a little out of place. And uh, so we needed more gender balanced groups and, um, and then I also needed a way of um, convincing everyone to participate. I actually require in my group, we, we have a presentation, and I made the group smaller so that I could do this. I then go around the room 
and require everybody to comment on the either on the, uh, the the students are giving one another feedback either on their presentation style or on content. Um, and that gets them used to talking and it breaks down the barriers and it's worked actually. And for, for my group uh, now, the um, everybody's comfortable. They've gotten used to it, but they, uh, uh, some of the women have told me that at the beginning that they were really glad I did this because they really weren't comfortable and they had to be taken out of their comfort zone to start participating. Um, but we've broken down those barriers and they seem to be doing great. Uh, I'll know within a couple of years as this next crop uh, graduates and we see what kind of PhD dissertations they produce. But, uh, you know, this has been um, a major commitment of mine, you know, to try to break down this barrier and train, uh, 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 enable everyone, the men and the women, all of them to, uh, to reach their potential and do what's necessary to let them to let them achieve that. Is there a particular problem in economics? Do you think perhaps that there are? I don't know. This is a real stab in the dark. But are there more concentrated sort of centres of power in economics? There are these great schools, which seem so dominant, and uh, I suppose set a tone. I don't know if that's what the problem is. Perhaps. Um, and, and, you know, and, and I am aware that sometimes in some disciplines, there's just better role models where, where women have already penetrated the discipline and where the, uh, um, where the, where the women who are, um, who are studying there now don't feel so isolated. I think it's hard to be the first. And, and maybe part of the problem is just that it's self-perpetuating. Maybe once we um, break the barriers and make it normal for um, uh, once the groups are gender balanced, once we have more role models in place, perhaps it'll just be that much easier. But uh, but but right now, um, I'm just you know trying to do what I can with the group that I have, so that the uh, uh, trying trying to see what it takes to help everybody achieve their potential and uh, whatever that potential may be. Like many of us, Paul Milgram has been conducting much of his work via video conferencing during the pandemic. We're talking to him from his home in California. And at this point in the conversation, he picks up his phone and starts pacing around the room, showing glimpses of a vaulted ceiling in white stained wood and wall-sized windows facing a garden with lush greenery and flowers. As we'll hear in a minute, it's a venue for productive academic barbecue nights. I like the fact you're walking while we're talking. I also like to walk and talk. Do you find you think better when your legs are moving? Oh, I was just getting tired sitting down. I Yeah, sometimes it's just nice to move around a little bit. Um, yes. Do you think that the current impositions that we are all living under are going to change the way things happen in the future? Do you think you're going to be spending a lot more time in the future not going from you know, A to B, but rather just walking around your room on Zoom calls because that's the way people are learning to do things now? I am pretty sure that um, some that some things, uh, there are some things that are done pretty well on Zoom, and I have a feeling that some of those things will continue. We'll be doing less long-distance travel. Um, I can deliver a seminar on the East Coast without going to the East Coast. Um, there's going to be uh, some things like that. But um, there are a lot of things where, where the in-person meetings are just critical. I have a, one of the things I do in training the graduate students that I was talking about a moment ago 
because um, I have them come to my house um, every Monday evening, or I did have them come to my house every Monday evening at five o'clock. And uh, we'd have an hour of seminar, and then we'd have a half hour of, of uh, these comments that I uh, described earlier, would go around the room and everybody would talk about it. And then we would have uh, dinner together. And then this time of year, we would go out in my backyard over here and uh, we would uh, have a barbecue and, uh, and it would be a very social time. And, uh, and during those, those social times, what happens is the, the conversation is less restricted and the ideas that are suggested by the seminar, some of it's just social. Some of it though is uh, intellectual as uh, people start talking about ideas and joint projects come out of that. I, the, the, the serendipitous uh, connections, you don't get those over Zoom. The, uh, the, at least the way things are working right now it just doesn't work that way at all. And the, the students who are just, just hanging out and, and chatting and uh, then able to pick up, uh, um, pick up on new topics, that doesn't happen. And the support for students who are, who are doing badly. The other thing is that the social part is actually part of the research because if, you, if you're doing research, you have, um, if you're daring, you fail sometimes. And uh, and when you fail, you need some kind of support from others who, uh, you know, maybe suggest new directions or, or maybe just give you emotional support. And uh, a lot of these people, I mean, I needed it when I was young. And I'm, a lot of these guys, I think, need when they're young as well, um, the support to know it's okay to fail. It doesn't mean that you're going to fail forever or that you're a failure. Uh, it just means you have to keep working and get on to the next thing. And Here's some other ideas you can work on. So th that kind of in-person stuff, we can't do that over Zoom. Um, you have to be there. Uh, and we're doing that again now, by the way. The part of the reason I mentioned that is that uh, everybody in my group is vaccinated. So as of two weeks ago, we started meeting again. And everybody was so happy to get back together physically. You know, some hugs, you know, just uh, just to be able to sit down in a social setting with other people. Uh, it, it was so, it was so nice, and and that is part of the research uh, too for us. I suppose then people might ask you, given that, that things have turned out well, how, how come you made the right decisions? How come you took the right turn a lot of the time? Yeah, I didn't always take the right turn. I mean, the, the uh, I grabbed just enough of them to be doing pretty well. I remember. Uh, 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 so there have been some big errors that I made. I remember research errors. Uh, I remember in the um, very early 1990s, um, uh, somebody from the National Science Foundation asked me if I would do uh, work doing research on the foundations of the internet, uh, the economics of the internet. I was too busy doing other things and I declined to do that. I could see that it was potentially very important, but um, Oh, I don't know. I could see that it was potentially very important, but, you know, the, the World Wide Web was not around yet. And, and you know, we didn't have Google yet. And the, uh, I had little clue of where it was going. And, and I turned in the wrong direction. <laughs> I, turned in a, I turned in a different direction anyway. It worked out okay, but uh, wasn't quite as big as the, <laughs> as the Internet turned out to be. Um, so I think I've made enough good decisions. Um, and uh, abandoned the things that worked out badly and stuck with things that work out, worked out well. Um, 
to have the career that I've had. Mm -hmm. I suppose it's important not to get too caught up in regrets about things that you missed missed out on or that sort of stuff. You just have to focus on what you can do and what works. Yeah, right. And you never go, you can't go back. I mean, for the most part, um, it, it's been a principle of mine that, you know, if you miss something, you missed it. Um, you can't roll back the clock uh, and, uh, and try again. There are no, no do-overs. Um, you just have to keep plowing ahead from, where, from wherever you happen to be. Well, that seems to be a very sensible and apposite thing to say at this moment for the future of the planet. If you think about where we're sitting right now, you've got to plow on from where we happen to be and do what, do what we can. Do what we can from where we are, absolutely. You just heard Nobel Prize Conversations, a podcast series with Adam Smith, a co-production of Filt and Nobel Prize Outreach. The producer for this episode was Karin Svensson. The editorial team also includes Andrew Hart, Olivia Lundqvist, Magnus Yilier, and me, Claire Brilliant. Music by Epidemic Sound. In season three, we welcome guests from all six prize categories. Peace Laureate, Leima Bowie. Physics Laureate, Didier Coulot. Literature Laureate, Wale Suinka. Medicine Laureate, Elizabeth Blackburn. Chemistry Laureate, Joachim Frank. And the guest we just heard, Economic Sciences Laureate, Paul Milgram. You can find previous seasons and conversations, including a talk with Paul Milgram's partner in science, Robert Wilson, on Acast or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. If you're passionate about the Nobel Prize, you won't want to miss a single episode of our podcast. Be sure to subscribe. We're available on Acast, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, GeoSarvan, Spotify, and many, many more popular platforms.